0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. One of you was saying to me not long ago uh, that you work for a boss who is one of those real hands-on manager uh, types, Um, knows every aspect of every detail of the business, um, is able to perform every job in the entire operation, Uh, is known for leaving the front office and rolling up his sleeves and pitching in wherever needed. And I thought initially when you said that 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 sounded like a good thing. And um, in fact, it sounded familiar. Um, But then you said to me, no, it's a matter of trust. He doesn't trust anybody. Or maybe you said, He's got to do it all himself or he doesn't believe it will ever get done. And I was thinking this week how different that boss's frantic I'll do it all myself is from the boss, I'm not talking about Bruce Springsteen, (laughs) but the boss that we meet on the Sea of Galilee that Amy just read for us um, and the way he conducts his business this morning. Did you notice Jesus, the very beginning of his ministry, and what does he do? He calls together a group of very ordinary folk, and he gets them to do the work for him. Sometimes I think you and I may overlook what a peculiar way of getting the reign of God started this is. So Jesus chooses people who, um, from Mark's gospel at least, have absolutely no qualifications whatsoever for leadership. In fact, if you read Mark's gospel straight through, they are the spiritual equivalent of dumb and dumber. Their only qualification, really, is that God has called them. And that's you, <laughs> and me. We used to have a thing in our bulletin, I don't know when we got rid of this, and the line read, ministers all the members of Greenfield Presbyterian. And that wasn't just a trite phrase, we used to keep it in there as a reminder to ourselves that I, or Pastor Cindy and I, are not the only ministers. Before we had these beautiful glass doors at every entrance, on the big old doors we had a sign that read, servant's entrance when you went out into the world. So my job as your pastor, according to the first lesson today from Ephesians, my job as the pastor is to equip the saints. That's you. You're saints. You pay me the big bucks so that I can get you to do the work. I love it. There were three great truths that Protestant Christianity gave to the world. Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy have also made great contributions to the world. But the three truths given to us by the 16th century reformers Calvin, Luther, and Zwingli are these. First of all, that we are saved, that we are set right with God purely by God's grace. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more than God already loves you. And there is nothing you can do to make God stop loving you. So the very first and the biggest step that any spiritual person ever makes, according to Paul Tillich, the 20th 20th century theologian, the biggest step is to accept the fact that you are already accepted. The second thing the reformers taught us is that the ultimate authority in our lives belongs to no person, not a pope or an archbishop, not a president, not a prime minister, but to God. As God has revealed God's self to us in the scriptures, which is why, whether you are progressive or conservative, you have to know the Bible. Doesn't matter if it's a personal decision or a social issue. The beginning of the discussion, not the end of the discussion, but the beginning of the discussion is what does the Bible say about this? That's where Christians begin. And the third thing the Reformers lifted up for us is what we call the priesthood of all believers, that we are, every one of us, called by God in baptism to serve God. No one is set above anyone else in ministry. There is no hierarchy. This is something that many branches of the church have failed to realize, and it is something that many ordained clergy and lay people, unfortunately, buy into. It is a misunderstanding. One of my favorite preachers, Barbara Brown Taylor, has written a wonderful um, piece on ordination and vocation in, in which she stresses the ministry of all believers. This is what she writes. She says, Somewhere along the way we misplaced the ancient vision of the church as a priestly people set apart for ministry in baptism, that is a vision that is foreign to many churchgoers who have learned from colloquial usage that minister means the ordained person in a congregation. And layperson means somebody who doesn't engage in full-time ministry. Now, professionally speaking, that may be fair enough. Ordained people tend to make their living uh, through their ministry, and most lay people do not. But speaking ecclesiastically, a big word that clergy love to use, speaking from a church point of view, this is just a disaster. Language like that turns clergy into the ultimate authority spiritually on every subject, and it turns lay people into just consumers who shop around the church for the church that offers them the best product that they can find. Perhaps, Barbara goes on to say, perhaps we should revive Luther's vision of the priesthood of all believers who are ordained by God at baptism to share in Jesus' ministry in the world. But that requires a deeper understanding of ministry and life. To believe in your priesthood is to see the extraordinary dimensions of an ordinary life it is to see the hand of God at work in the world and to see your hands as being necessary to that work whether those hands are diapering an infant or assembling an automobile or balancing a corporate budget, or working with animals at a zoo. These are God's hands. They are claimed by God in baptism for God's work in the world. There are plenty of people out there um, who will decline that honor and who find it either too scary or too intrusive to take that seriously. But for those who are willing to accept that challenge, you will likely want to know more about what a priest does exactly. And the first thing to say is that a priest is a representative person, someone who walks the always shifting boundary between heaven and earth, sometimes representing God to other people, and sometimes representing other people to God. But pursuing that vocation, priests are likely to wear a hundred different hats. They are social workers, and they are cooks. They are financial types. They are writers. They are parents. They are philanthropists. They are cheerleaders and friends. But whatever hat they happen to be wearing at the time priests remember that they wear it as God's person for God's sake and in God's name. Let me just add here that I think in the whole discussion about the ordination of gays and lesbians in the church which in case you haven't followed the news is raging in the Methodist Church these days or for example the ordination of women a subject that is always raging in the Catholic Church, Um, this is one of the serious fundamental theological misunderstandings because there are many in the church who will tell you that everyone can be baptized, everyone can be a member of the church, but only certain people of certain orientations or sexes are eligible for certain ministries in the church. No. No In baptism, all are called to ministry just like those first disciples, not because anything about them made them worthy, but because God chose them. So, while preaching and celebrating the sacraments are specific tasks, the two that I have been set apart to do, um, the reality is they are metaphors for what the whole church does all the time. Preaching is not just something that an ordained minister does for 15 minutes, if you're lucky, 20 minutes if you're not, depending on when the hot dogs are ready. They are something that the whole congregation does all week long. It is a way of approaching life, of seeing God's presence out there, of being God's presence out there. It's our ministry given to us in our baptism. So worship is led by a liturgist, Amy in this case, which comes from two words, laos, people, and urgy, work. Worship is a work of the people. It's something that we all do. When you go to the theater, you sit there as the audience and there are people up on the stage who entertain you. However, as any one of our confirmands will tell you, in the theater of worship, there is only one audience. And who is that? God. And we are all on this stage performing that. And if you haven't tried that on for size, you should, because it will affect the way you think of worship. It means that when we pray, if you don't, the prayer is not complete. It means that even now, the sermon that I am giving is 50% my words... And 50%, you listening and appropriating that in your life. If I stand up here and give the most theologically astute sermon ever given, which I give on a weekly basis, and you don't listen to it and apply it, it gets a 50%, which I think is a failing grade. Even if you can't sing a note to read each word on the screen that Sandy is frantically flipping through there as if it was from and for you, that's what makes a joyful noise to the Lord. In communion, whether you are coming forward or sitting on your duff, it doesn't matter. We say to each other, the body broken, the blood of Christ shed for you. We minister to each other. When we do the confession, you may have noticed that it is usually the liturgist who pronounces God's forgiveness over you. This is not an accident because it is a reminder that this is how God's forgiveness makes it into the world. We all have that ministry. So Barbara goes on to tell a story about uh, a day that she was taking communion to one of the older women in the congregation. Incidentally, you know that the deacons in the church can take um, communion to people outside. Uh, it's called extended communion. It's like they picked up the trays on the communion table and instead of going to the back row, they just went out the door and kept going to the hospital or to the nursing home. So Barbara writes about um, calling on this older woman. She says, she sat huddled in her wheelchair as I turned the television tray between us, into an altar. Tiny chalice, tiny piece of bread, a little yellow rose from her garden, all neatly arranged on a white paper napkin. Because she was 97 and all but blind, I suggested that she not bother with a prayer book, Barbara's Episcopalian. I would read all the lines I said, yours and mine too. You just join in on the parts that you know. And she nodded and we began, each of us delivering our lines on cue until I came to the great thanksgiving, which is the communion prayer. Then, when I raised my hands, she raised hers too the sleeves of her flowered gown falling down her bony arms as she lifted her gnarled fingers into the air. Holy and gracious Father, I began, in your infinite love you made us for yourself. In your infinite love, she said, slowly tasting every word. And when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, I went on, You, in your mercy, sent Jesus. In your mercy, she said, smiling as though someone she knew had just entered the room. When I realized that she meant to say the whole prayer with me, I waited for her to catch up, and we prayed it together our voices looping through one another in an unstudied duet. I had thought these were my lines. They turned out to be hers as well. No one had fooled her all these years she sat watching somebody else bless the bread and the wine. She knew she was a priest. Now, I note in today's gospel that most of the ministry that Jesus hands to the disciples is a ministry of healing. And as your pastor, I am constantly impressed with the healing ministry of people like you. I know someone, for example, who paid for the treatment of a young man who was addicted to alcohol. He's not a member of their family. I have watched even over the last few weeks. And I know about many of you who have visited people in hospitals or nursing homes. I watched the other day as many of you made the memorial service for Gene Marnick possible. I was remembering, as I thought about this sermon, a young person in our congregation who um, one day at school, there was a new person, um, new to the school, I think, and had no one to play with invited that person to come over and sit with her at lunch, introduced her to her friends. Whenever you do these things, you are ministering in his name. God has delegated really important things to you. It is true. Almighty God could be everywhere. We are talking about God here. But for reasons only known to God, God has made you, her representative in any number of places. turns out our God is a great delegator. It's a little intimidating, I will admit that. Apparently this is the way the boss does business, so just get over it (laughs) and get on with it. Reminds me of a little piece from Annie Lamott's book, Have you ever read Annie Lamott? You should read Annie Lamott if you haven't read Annie Lamott. So this is a little quote from her book, Traveling Mercies. It's funny. I always imagined when I was a kid that adults had some kind of inner toolbox full of shiny tools, the saw of discernment, the hammer of wisdom, the sandpaper of patience. Then when I grew up, I found that Life just hands you these rusty, bent, old tools. Friendship and prayer and confession and honesty. And God says, just do the best you can with these. These will have to do. And usually, against all odds, they're enough. That's the way I think it is with ministry. Jesus comes into the world proclaiming God's reign. He heals, he teaches, he feeds, he reaches out to the poor. And then it's like he says, I have enjoyed doing all of this work. Now, why don't you try it on for yourselves? I'll commission you as my disciples, my ambassadors, and that's you and me. So the question of the morning is where is Jesus calling you at this point in your life? What is the work for which you are equipped that you are being called to do that maybe nobody else will do? These final words from the pen of Anne Frank. How wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. How wonderful indeed. Amen.